Tonight I'd like to talk about the light of wisdom or the light that starts to um, get brighter as we practice and how we use our malady, we use our foibles, we use all our conditioning as our, as our path. And I was um, thinking about the talk today, and the first night talk is always one that has to acknowledge the, the breaks that we put on, as Mark spoke about, and how it really is a, a kind of going against the stream of just a huge momentum of habit. Uh, but also the first night after a day of, of bouncing around with our mind and our body being not so easy to be with, I have a feeling there are a few of you who planned your escape today. Anyone? Come on, tell the truth. Very good. And so it may be, I thought it would be useful to speak about why it might be worth staying. And maybe to contextualize the retreat a little bit more, because it's easy to forget, and our minds are very clever, and uh, pretty soon you can be making the most rational uh, reason why uh, being quiet, looking within, was not such a great idea. I just returned from leading a retreat along with several other people down in the Southern California desert in a place called what we call Yucca Valley, but it's officially Joshua Tree. And it's a retreat center that I have been uh, lucky enough to both uh, attend as a meditator like you. I had, had the good fortune of managing many, many retreats there in the early 1980s. Then starting in about 1985, I started leading retreats there. So I've been there almost all of 35 years. And naturally when I go there and I start reflecting on the different kinds of experiences I've had, in fact, I'm, I'm actually thinking right now as I'm speaking of, this, of a retreat center where I spent a lot of time in on the East Coast Insight Meditation Society. When I go there after having spent a lot of time sitting at least the first few years when I started returning, I would notice that my mouth would start quivering and my nose would start feeling this funny little buzzing feeling right when I would drive up to the driveway because all the old associations with being in a, in a long practice period. Well, Yucca Valley, since it's been so many years and so many different experiences, often elicits some kind of, a, of an old memory. And this time I, I couldn't... Uh, I couldn't stop thinking of a teacher who, uh, a, na- a teacher named Anagarka Munindra. Some of you have read a book about him. Some of you may have met him back in the early 80s. But he was the teacher of Joseph Goldstein, uh, who Spring mentioned today. Joseph, to me, I can say this publicly, he's, you know, he's one of my root teachers, and I consider him the preeminent Western uh, Dharma teacher. But his teacher for six years in India was a fellow named uh, Munindra. And Munindra was was like a little leprechaun. He was was, uh, full of joy, uh, uh, incredibly intelligent, and he loved, loved, loved the teachings of the Buddha, loved the Dharma, loved the practice, loved the whole... uh, 
joy of awakening. And during one of my early years there, I was his, I, I was managing the retreat and uh, my second job along with managing the retreat, like Robert, was to be his attendant, to basically get him what he needed and take him shopping when he wanted to go shopping. And so I would often ask him questions and I would ask him the most simple question. It could be even about the breath, could be about working with back pain, could be working with, with sounds or, or sights. And he would take a simple question and a half hour later I'd still be listening to a, a little dharmet because he was just a flood of dharma. So it was amazing to hang out with this guy. And he loved shopping and so he broke some of my views about what a good Buddhist should look like. I didn't know one from another in those days. I was just mostly curious. Uh, there was also, at a previous year, because I started to know that there were differences because there was a meditation master who came from Burma the two years before that who I sat with and he did everything very, very slowly. This was a fellow named Mahasi Sayadaw. And he would lift his cup and bring it to his mouth and drink it, drink whatever was in there. He'd put his hand back down and it might take three minutes for his hand to drop back to the side. Then he would turn to the side. Then he would turn to the other side. (laughs) And I took one look at him and I said, if this is what this leads to, I'm not interested. <laughs> so the, this was complete contrast to Anagarka Munindram. And even though he was speedy and talkative, uh, he, he, I could tell he was very wise. And when he left, said goodbye, he looked me straight in the eyes and he gave me a kind of penetrating gaze and he said, may you truly be happy and that seems like a very reasonable, nice thing to say, wishing me well, may me truly be happy. But for me, those words, may you truly be happy, just struck me, pierced my heart. And it shook something in me that said, well, I'm, I've got a fairly, I seem, I'm pretty happy. I've got a decent disposition, often in a good mood. But maybe I'm not truly happy. And that began a, that 30 something years, 34 years ago in the desert became, began an a inquiry for me about, uh, about happiness. What does that mean? And most of you have probably seen the one-liners from the Buddha. The Buddha says the highest happiness is peace. And so I started to study that that didn't even that didn't have a lot of resonance for me the highest happiness is peace at first because i associated peace with a, a peaceful feeling but clearly a peaceful feeling uh, couldn't happiness couldn't come down to a peaceful feeling because peaceful feelings are there one day and they're gone the next sometimes we feel peaceful sometimes we don't so there was some deeper meaning to the highest happiness is peace, and so I started to study it. And the more I looked at what the Buddha said about happiness, the more I saw that his life itself was an example, his teachings, I should say, that were, his teachings 
were born of the direct experiences that he had. And they were born, the teachings were born of his evolving understanding of happiness, what happiness means. And, and he essentially said there are two kinds of happiness. This is what it came down to when all was said and done, came down to the fact, as one shouldn't adopt this as a view, he didn't adopt anything as a belief. He didn't adopt the teachings as a view. He, he taught the things that he realized from his own understanding. But he said that there were two kinds of happiness. There is what he called uh, conditioned happiness, caused happiness. Uh, it's, he called it lokia sukha. Lokia means worldly or conventional. And sukha is comfort, happiness, well-being. Sukha. And lokia sukha meant the kind of happiness, the one kind of happiness that depends on conditions being a certain way. So it's caused by when things go the way you want them to, when you get what you want, when the person who drives you crazy quits the, jo- quits the job. It's the, the relief that you experience, the joy that you experience when you get what you want. It is the, um, so it's conditioned, it's dependent on conditions. And that includes every kind of, uh, every kind of pleasure that we can have. With, yikes. That kind of happiness includes every single kind of pleasure that we can have with our senses. So that's worldly happiness. Anything you see and enjoy depends on seeing. You hear a sound, smell a smell, you taste food. That's conditioned happiness. When that, those conditions are present, you feel it. When they're absent, you don't. The Buddha also said about this kind of happiness is that it, um, he also called it the happiness of bondage. He called it the happiness of, maybe this is extreme word, but called it the happiness of slavery. Because it makes one a dependent on, a slave to, hostage to conditions being a certain way if we don't understand them, if we don't understand it. So this kind of happiness, which is most of what we associate with happiness and well-being in our life, is subsumed under an umbrella of what the Buddha called, uh, even though he called it the happiness of bondage, it's more, um, in the teachings, the word that's used is it's subsumed under the umbrella of what's called dukkha. Dukkha is the word that's sometimes loosely translated as suffering, but it has many different elements to it, but in in this way, it's the dukkha uh, in its element of of unsatisfactory, unreliable. It's not a very reliable kind of happiness. And unfortunately, if we become dependent on this kind of happiness, which most of us are, we are happy when we have things, we're unhappy when we don't. And not only do we uh, experience... the pleasure of whatever it is that we get, but it also, with each 
each passing of a pleasurable experience. That pleasurable experience leaves in its wake a little bit of ugh, loss. And we don't like that loss very much. We don't hover very long and just feel, oh, this... We don't, as William Blake says, we don't kiss the joy as it flies. He says, he or she who binds, I'll say the masculine tonight, he who binds to himself a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. We, our habit is not so much to kiss the joy as it flies and live in eternity sunrise. What we often do, because not only is that sense of loss left in the wake of conventional happiness, but it also plants a seed. It plants a seed that says, when that something experience like that last experience I had arises again, I want to repeat it. Did any of you have any kind of pleasurable experiences today on the retreat? Did any of you, after that experience happened, try to replicate that experience? Thank you. Did any of you come to the retreat with the memory of having had experiences at other retreats? Did any of you try to get to that, that experience again? So this is the, we call that carrying the corpses of previous retreats. There's a tendency to burden ourselves with the attempt to replicate something that's happened before. So this is the, maybe the challenging news, is that most of what we have, uh, most of what we have, or most of what we have oriented ourselves to as the cause of happiness has been that kind of happiness that leaves in its wake a basic dissatisfaction. And then it, that kind of happiness has kept us on a, on a continuous wheel of endlessly looking for the next experience. I talked about it last night as being obsessed with what's next. And so no wonder we come to the retreat and we're waiting for the bell to ring, we're we're waiting for the meal. We're waiting for the Dharma talk in some cases. We're waiting for the end of the retreat already where our heart and mind is always looking for something else. It's literally built into our, our biology. So it's not our fault necessarily. It's just habit. And as we all know that the, the consumer universe needs to... Um, you know, it thrives on, on, uh, on that kind of uh, addictive mind that's constantly uh, lost in the world of this kind of worldly happiness. As Sogyal Rinpoche, a Tibetan teacher, put it, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara. Samsara is this word for endless wandering, this endless searching. And it's barren distractions. Modern society seems to me to be a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, 
but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and depression that it fosters and trains us all in and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara's highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda, creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction in and around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it is so ingenious at setting for us. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams and ambitions which promise happiness, but lead only, he's pretty dramatic here, but lead only to misery. We're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst, And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us thirstier. How's that make you feel? (laughs) For some reason I get happy when I hear those things. (laughs) Because somebody's saying, waking me up to my own mental habits, my own uh, tendency. As another teacher of Sri Nisargadatta put it, as long as we believe that we need things to make us happy, we, also, we shall also believe that in their absence we must be miserable. Mind shapes itself according to its beliefs. Pleasure in this way is a distraction. It merely increases the false conviction that one needs to have and do things to be happy, when in reality it's just the opposite. Real happiness is best expressed negatively as There's nothing wrong. I have nothing to worry about. After all, the ultimate purpose of practice is to reach a point where this conviction, instead of being only verbal, is based on actual, ever-present experience. Which experience? Experience of being open, uncluttered by expectations. It's like the happiness of open spaces, of being young, of having all the time and energy for doing things, for discovery, adventure, Your true home is in openness, emptiness. True happiness has no cause, and what has no cause is immovable. So that leads to the second kind of happiness that the Buddha spoke about, which he called Lokutra Sukha. Lokutra means uh, beyond the world, uh, uh, unstuck from the world, not... Uh, a well-being that doesn't depend on conditions, doesn't depend on circumstances, doesn't depend on your life situation. That is, uh, that is a, a happiness that, as that last quote says, it's immovable, unshakable. So I like to say this at the beginning of the retreat because many people secretly even when they come to retreat, are looking much more for the first kind of happiness. And you, you'll likely, in your practice, be disappointed. On the other hand, if you aim for this second kind of happiness, aim for this unconditional happiness, then it is said that all the other kinds of pleasures come in the wake of that. That but you don't uh, fall into what the Buddha called misplaced faith. So how did the Buddha come to this understanding of 
of this happiness that is unstuck, that is free, that is unshakable, that is really the very nature of our hearts and minds, even in this moment, your own mind is free, has never been affected by any experience that has visited. Highs, lows, ups, downs, pleasure, pain, all the waves that have come through your life. There is an element in each of us. Some would say the very consciousness through which we're perceiving is, um, is lokutra sukha. That's why we keep pointing again and again. Uh, be aware. Awareness is not affected by whatever Awareness of fire is not hot. Awareness of sadness is not sad. So we have within us a capacity to be able to really sit in the middle of it all and maintain a sense of well-being. I know many of you know the story of the Buddha, but he was very much like us in that he had a relative, just the fact that we can all be on this retreat suggests a level of uh, comfort and privilege that, uh, that actually many, many millions, billions of people in this world don't have. They couldn't, it, one, it wouldn't be safe to meet like this. Two, they would not have even the, maybe the, the clarity of mind or the openness of heart, the curiosity. So many conditions. Uh, there are very few people that, uh, that, are, um, that have the, the good fortune to be able to hear teachings, put them to practice, be interested enough, have time, energy, good health, etc. So very favorable conditions. We're really blessed in that way. And that's one of the classic reflections of the preciousness of our, of our opportunity in our life and that, to actually contemplate that every day. But the, so the Buddha had all these amazing conditions and relative to his time, he was exceedingly privileged. And yet, he, by his 20s, he had that, uh, Mark kept using the expression last night, a kind of existential angst. And it's so universal, this feeling that some kind of queasiness that we walk around with, that something's not quite right, or often the, the extension of that feeling is there's not something not quite with, right with me. And, that, and maybe everybody else has got it together, especially when you know, we tend to idealize everything and everyone, and we're especially idealistic here, but somehow we're not, we're, we're not in on the secret or something. So there's a tendency to be, to be um, dissatisfied. And in his time, he also was, all the teachings of the culture said, wine, song, food, sensual indulgence is the, is the doorway to happiness. And very much like, like all times. That's basically the, the human tendency of mind to go for the quick, go for the, the short-term pleasure and think and assume 
that if you link enough of them together, you'll be happy. And you know, we often have a joke here about the perfect California or San Francisco or Marin County, wherever you happen to be, the perfect day when you wake up and you look into the eyes of your beloved and you make mad, passionate love and you roll out of bed and go into your, your, take your hot shower, go into your hot tub or go make your perfect vegetable smoothie, (laughs) um, fruit smoothie, then make mad passionate love again, then <laughs> do whatever it is. And you know, we all aspire to this, these, this so-called perfect day when you can link all these pleasures together. But unfortunately, it hasn't really made anyone happy. And it was true at the, with Buddha. It had not made him happy having more than everyone. And he began to feel that kind of restlessness and agitation, that feeling of dissatisfaction compounded to the point where he couldn't sit still anymore, and he just had to run. I remember having to sit with myself in early retreats and come to terms with the amount of times I had run from silence by chasing after things. I had to feel a whole undercurrent of restlessness, and I remember literally wanting to jump out of, your, of my skin. Any of you feel like wanting to jump out of your skin today? A few of you. This is all part of the of the detox part of the, um, the purification. No different at the time of the Buddha. Something really struck him that, and this is where he realized the first of the truths that he then later shared uh, in his teachings. He started wandering around you know, looking for some meaning in his life and what did he come into contact with? And it said he came into contact with what are called the four heavenly messengers. And, but it was the first three heavenly messengers that, uh, that blew his mind, that broke his heart open, that, uh, that turned his mind, turned his heart toward, uh, toward the example of the fourth heavenly messenger. The fourth heavenly messenger was a, a mendicant, uh, someone who was, going, who was living differently, who was who is not just lost in the next, the next um, experience. But what he saw, the first three heavenly messengers, uh, first one was someone uh, who was similar in age to him. At this time he was 29. And he saw someone similar in age who was extremely ill, uh, potentially dying, and that shook him up. And then he saw an extremely old person. These are obvious things in everyone's life, but somehow the teachings remind us that we don't really look at this. We don't open to it. We pretend it's not happening. We hide our elderly in nursing homes. and um, Not every culture does, but I would say in American culture and North American culture that there's the nursing home industry is huge. Other cultures, the, the elderly are very much part of the, this, the idea of filial piety and the devotion to the, to the elders and respect of the elders. But, but there is still some way that our mind is geared toward not looking at the 
inevitable fact of sickness and old age. And then finally he saw the third heavenly messenger that was a, uh, a corpse, a dead person. And that pierced his heart. And he felt uh, initially, and it may seem strange that somebody his age wouldn't have seen these things, but it reminds us that we, we can keep ourselves oblivious to this. But he realized that he had built his whole identity, his whole sense of his pride was built on his youth and his vigor. His pride was built on his health. And his pride was built on, on being alive. And it's said in that very moment that his pride, that the so-called three prides were just uh, dissolved. The pride in youth, pride in health, and the pride in life. And he came face to face with the reality, the universal reality of impermanence and change. And intellectually, this is all obvious for all of us, but some way, we keep running, try to run fast enough not to have to deal with it. We spend billions upon billions on our beautification and on our, all our exercise. And all that's wonderful, but as the Buddha described later, this is, we put, the kind of faith we put in youth and health and life is, um, is misplaced. We're, we're actually putting our faith in quicksand, in a way. Is that, maybe that's not the metaphor. Maybe it's just sand falling through our fingers. As Hafez, the Sufi poet, put it, he says, learn to recognize the counterfeit coins that may buy you just a moment of pleasure, but then drag you for days like a broken man behind a farting camel. (laughs) Sorry. So it's at this point that the Buddha realized the definition of birth. This is not weird. This is just how it is. The definition of birth is the leading cause of sickness, old age, and death. It is the, this is what comes with the territory. And because life is of the nature, each of our lives is of the nature to change, we, um, we will experience and change in uncertainty because the time of death is uncertain, the time of getting anything is uncertain, the time of losing something is uncertain. And because that's true, we, if we are born, we experience all kinds of things that are hard to bear. We experience the, the, the deeper meaning of dukkha, which means that which is hard to bear. It's hard to bear sickness. It's hard to bear aging. It's hard to bear dying. It's hard to bear not getting what you want. It's hard to bear not wanting what you get. It's hard to bear loss. It's hard to bear grief. It's hard to bear all the things that come as a very definition of your birth. And his teaching 
that grew out of this very moment in his life when he finally faced this. His teaching was to do what he did. His prescription, you know, he was sometimes called the great physician. He said, uh, this is the diagnosis and your prescription is, and this, the diagnosis is everything I just described, the, the prescription is open to it. Open to it. Welcome it. Stop fighting with this fact. This is, um, find your seat right in the middle of this. Wake up. Realize the, the unreliability of, as Bolozov says, the unreliability of trying to keep up with the Joneses. He says, it's time we see that the Joneses are not happy. that we cannot find a, a reliable a reliable sense of refuge a reliable sense of peace on that gerbil wheel of of either depending on our body or depending on experiences depending on stuff it just unfortunately uh, doesn't make doesn't make us happy gives us a lot of pleasure and this world is extraordinarily pleasurable but we actually, because our mind moves into a state of, of reactivity, a state of craving, that compounding feeling of, of wanting more, uh, we actually deprive ourselves of the real enjoyment of the pleasures of our life and the pleasures of our senses. And that hopefully that's something that we can recover in our practice is that we can truly feel the beauty of the nature, the beauty of taste, the beauty of sound, the beauty of smell, the beauty of our thoughts, but kiss them as they fly. Not hold on so tightly. So when he saw that the whole orientation of humanity was this, this flywheel, this, this, this wheel of, um, this samsaric wheel, this wheel of endlessly searching for a future that never arrives, this endless um, bondage in, in time, always thinking I'm, I've, I've come from the past, I'm moving through the present, on my way to the future. This habit of just making the present the only place that we live, a kind of pass-through on our way to someplace else. That's what happens in our mind when we're on that, on that wheel. He saw that that was the whole orientation of, the, of people's minds and culture. And when he finally shared his teaching with his ascetic friends and he turned the wheel of the Dharma, gave the teaching on the Four Noble Truths, he said, yeah, the first one is life has all these things that are difficult to bear, open to them. And he said the second truth, the cause of that suffering, what turns that, what turns that which is difficult to be with into mental torment, mental suffering, is this deep, deep, conditioned habit of wanting things to be other than the way they are that expresses itself as that incessant wanting mind 
the incessant aversive mind, reactive mind, that, rep, that it shows up as that constant desire uh, to become someone, to get somewhere, to, to be, um, keep moving. I brought along this quote that I had meant to share last night. I don't, I don't know where it is now, but it's an editorial that uh, I've been reading for years on retreats that, that really speaks to the, this habit of, um, of creating our whole sense of identity by, um, by moving quickly, by being as what this editorialist Amy Cross Rosenthal calls being busy. She said, how have you been? And our usual answer is busy. How was your week? Good, busy. How's life? Good, busy. And she goes on to say, you name the question, busy's the answer. She says, I know we're all terribly busy doing terribly important things, but I think more often than not, busy's the, the most simple knee-jerk response. She says, have people always been this busy? Were cavemen this busy too? This week is crazy. I've got 10 caves to draw on. Can I meet you by the fire next week? But her view is, she thinks that uh, this busyness has been, has been born by the advent of coffee bars. <laughs> and, and then busy's luscious byproduct, which is productivity. Ah, the joy of doing, of crossing off. All of this keeps our mind in a state of, of, of searching, of overshooting the only place that we can find that unshakable peace, that that well-being that doesn't depend on conditions. We miss ourselves. That's why it's sometimes this, this, lo- this unstuck from the world, this unconditioned happiness is sometimes called an open secret. Right here, right as you sit here in front of your own, on your own cushion, your own wakefulness. But you're busy Go in search. One person explained this issue that we have that makes us keep moving so quickly. It's the Buddha's second noble truth, the cause of suffering is craving, clinging, craving to becoming, craving for sense pleasures, craving for more existence. And then the reverse or the aversive side, craving for non-existence, wanting to shut things out, wanting to check out, wanting to distract ourselves. Well, one person anonymously created a story. It says, once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. What do you mean? railed the farmer. You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, Sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. 
So what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, My teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem. What's that? asked the farmer. The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems. Anyway, it's the first night of a retreat. (laughs) So remembering about the pleasures of the world and about our endless seeking, it's not about giving up the things of this world. As Suzuki Roshi says, renunciation is not giving up the things of this world. It's understanding that they go away. Understanding their unreliability. And the, so the prescription for, for the cause of our suffering, our, our t- mental torment, the mental suffering that gets added to the, other, to the universal things that are difficult to bear, this cause meaning the, the mind that's craving, that's holding on, that's wanting more, that's, that's never satisfied, his prescription was to let go, to abandon the cause, to let go, to let be, to realize your life as it has come to be right here. To just know what it's like to have a mind that is not embellishing your experience, that's not pushing it away, that's not grasping, that's not building a monument Uh, not spinning out in where you're going and where you've been. To let go of anything extra, to see that our whole life, the totality of our life, is very simple in a way. Easily overlooked that it's made of, of six experiences. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, sensing, thinking. And life in its immediacy is so deep and so rich, so alive, so indescribable that um, our running from it obscures that. So how did he come to this experience, this prescription to let go? How did he come to see that that would be the, the methodology that one would use to deal with this strong, deeply conditioned tendency of all of our minds to want things other than what's happening, want things to be different than the way they are? How did the Buddha in the course of his life realize that? Well, because he saw that, that mendicant, that uh, person who was in robes, who was living very simply, who had a very peaceful countenance, he got the idea that he would, do, he would follow that path in some way. And I always take that as not so much that we all have to become nuns and monks, but that we, that we do that it is helpful to go against the stream of our usual habits, to slow down, and you're doing that. So you already have that brewing in you. And, and he did the very same thing. He stopped, and he went to the best meditation teachers he could find in his day. 
And very quickly, he experienced, um, because of the sincerity of his practice, because he, at this point, he said, if I stay in my, my dad's um, business, if I stay in my conventional life, and this is the way he was viewing it at the time, he said, for me, it would be like sitting on a bed of coals if there's no peace in my heart. And he, was, he just wanted to find something more reliable than everything that he had seen around him. So he practiced and he used many of the elements that we're using on, on this retreat. He gathered his attention as a way of orienting himself to the present moment. He brought his mind into his body and his body into his mind. And he used the... the um, the natural flow of the, the sensations that are created by the flow of breathing. And very quickly, he, his mind coalesced and he experienced a, a great um, sense of well-being and happiness, a great joy of a mind that's uh, not wanting to be somewhere else for a moment. And his, he felt his body smooth out. Did any of you feel this today where your body smoothed and your mind was quiet for a moment? few of you. Well, he experienced this in such an intensity that, um, that he was amazed at how refined this kind of pleasure was, more so than any he'd ever experienced. And it was so much longer lasting than the pleasures the ordinary kind of more gross sense pleasures, as beautiful as they are. But then he had a realization that what he had experienced was um, as juicy as it was, as delicious, as, as refined, as beautiful, as a state of deep concentration. He saw that it was also unreliable, that eventually it would pass away and also leave in its wake uh, the desire to replicate it. And he saw that th- this is not true happiness. Remember the beginning, may you truly be happy. That wasn't true happiness. It was just what you could call high-class sense pleasure. Or as one of my teachers called, high-class samsara. Unfortunately, there was no one else around at that point who could guide him to anything beyond what he had. This was the pinnacle of what was being offered by the teachers of his day. So this is when he went and hung out with some ascetic friends and tried starving himself and denying his body any pleasure and went to the other extreme from sensual pleasure to sensual denial. And then he just got mentally tired, physically weak, unable to practice at all. And so that's when he realized that, that, um, that there's a middle place. And he took food. And he said, he realized we have to have some comfort. We have to have, be well fed. We have to have a decent amount of, of well-being. And, uh, but not excessively. Don't have to join the cult of the the cult of pleasure, the culture of pleasure. You just have, you have to enjoy it, but kiss it as it flies. But still, 
once he saw that there was a, a middle place, he still wasn't quite truly happy. And then he just decided that he was not going to stop sitting until he found what he was looking for, found a reliable refuge. And he practiced and he used that quality of one-pointedness. He used that concentration. But what is said in the teachings is he didn't let the joy of it take over. Instead, he used the power of mind to carefully, exactly in the same way that you are doing on this retreat, to carefully notice moment to moment what's happening. And to apply uh, the same mindfulness to joyful experiences, to unpleasant experiences, equal opportunity. And he noticed that no matter what came into his mind, as long as there was some continuity, some continuous noticing, that everything he noticed increased the sense of that one-pointedness, sense of presentness, a sense of embodiedness. And each thing he noticed, not only did it help steady himself to, to notice moment by moment, by moment but everything he noticed made his mind brighter and brighter and brighter. It was as though each moment of noticing was, as one teacher put it, like brushing the dust of memory until the clear mirror of your mind is laid bare. And the brighter his mind got, the more he started being not just taken by what he was noticing, but as Mark was talking about, taken by when the question came up in the hall today about the nature of awareness itself. And he, there was a point where he saw, oh my Lord, my mind is shining in its clarity and everything is seen, everything's being seen more clearly. And that's nice, it's pleasurable, but it's not just the fact that his mind began to, he began to fall into his mind's natural radiance but the natural radiance was allowed him to see more of how things work in our mind. And what did he see? He saw very clearly that whatever arrived, he saw it, he had already seen it in a general level, sickness, old age, and death, but he saw it on a microscopic level. Whatever arises, passes away. Whatever arises and passes away, if you try to hold to it, it's like rope burn. You suffer. You let it go, it arises and passes away of itself. You can see that every experience arises and passes selflessly. That it's just happening. And an interesting thing happened as he saw the arising and passing of his experience with this kind of natural radiance. He actually later shared this beautiful passage. He said, he said luminous is this mind, brightly shining. And it gets colored by all the things that visit us. And the people who don't practice don't understand this, so they just get lost in their mind. They get confused. But he went on to say, luminous is this mind, brightly shiny, and it is untouched by whatever visits. This the yogi understands. So there is cultivation of their heart and mind. 
So not only did he see the, the law of change in that microscopic way, but he saw that, um, that the more he was able to see that things come and go, the happier he became. He started to feel this kind of joy that didn't seem to depend on what was going on. Sometimes called the vipassana happiness or the joy of equanimity. And he realized this is a hit. This is the first hit of Lokutra Sukha. A well-being that doesn't depend on what's happening. And it was out of that balance of mind that, that um, his mind relaxed and opened and he realized that what's called nirvana or the unconditioned, he realized that the nature of all of our minds are unconditioned, they're free. And at first he didn't think anybody could get it because it was so subtle, was trying to see your own face, very, very deep in a way. But then he thought of his ascetic friends and they were sincere and they were close, but they were confused. But he went and talked to them and he said, life is tough. What turns it into mental suffering is grasping and condemning and, and uh, you need to let go, learn to let go, let go of this grasping, be present. And he said the third truth, there's an end to this, this endless running from silence. And the prescription for that is realize it. Realize it for yourself. And then he said, because I've run out of time, he said there is a fourth truth, that there is, um, there is a way, there is a path that you can create with your life, not following some kind of cookie-cutter approach, but with your life, right in the middle of it, there is a way that you can uh, develop your own understanding, evolving understanding of happiness, starting with, with non-harming as we started the retreat. And so this is what creates the conditions for the joy of blameless, the, the bliss of blamelessness, it, makes, it creates the conditions for, for you to be able to enjoy all the pleasures of the world. If you're a, a non-harming person, if you take care with your speech and your actions and your livelihood, etc. And you can develop the joy of, of, a, of a well-developed mind through practice. That's the middle part of the Noble Eightfold Path. Uh, wise concentration, wise effort, wise mindfulness. And if you develop this steadiness of mind, this harmony of, of mind and body that makes possible the, the last part of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is wise understanding and wise thought. That you st- your thoughts start being oriented toward non-harming, toward generosity, toward, um, toward love. And, uh, and the prescription is this must be cultivated. So all that happened for him right in the middle of his life, as I hope it will in the middle of yours. But all of us have to wake up in some way. And so I leave you with the words of Jennifer Wellwood in her poem called The Dakini Speaks. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. 
Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like ripe human beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, but she is only wild, and her compassion exquisitely precise. Brilliantly penetrating, luminous with truth, she strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. Let's stop making deals for a safe passage. There isn't one anyway, and the cost is too high. We're not children anymore. The true human adult gives everything for what cannot be lost. Let's dance the wild dance of no hope. Let's be quiet for a moment. You don't have to change postures. May all beings realize the end of Suffering, may all beings be free. May all beings know the highest happiness. Thank you for your long enduring attention. Thank you, especially on the first night. It's hard to sustain attention and We do still have 20 minutes for walking practice before our last sitting, and there will be some chanting at the next sitting. So please continue. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.